Well, the website is available now on your phones, but uh, you know, at any point in time in the message, if you decide it's uh, a little boring, I guess you can go in there and check out the new website. So hopefully that's not the case today. Um, in fact, it's really good to see everybody here for our uh, early 4th of July weekend. If you are new with us this morning, we just completed a series on our vision and values as a church. And if you missed any of those messages, you can go onto our new website and check them out. Um, today, we're moving into a new series on the Old Testament book of Daniel entitled, When Babylon is Home. When Babylon is Home. So we're glad you've joined us. Uh, before we dive into Daniel, would you please pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for all those that have come here this morning, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and your grace, Lord. We thank you that you are God who is sovereign over all things, Lord, that you are king over all nations, that you are king over our hearts, Lord. And I pray as we look in to Daniel this morning and over this summer, Lord, that you would stir us to action, that you would teach us what it means to be faithful when we are in exile, Lord, and that you ultimately would receive the glory as we know that you are faithful no matter the circumstances. So we praise you today. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you follow the news with any kind of regularity, you know one country the United States has friction with is Iran. The country operates as an Islamic theocracy where the state and religion are intertwined. As a result, admitting that you're any other religion other than Muslim puts a target on your back. There are even recent stories of pastors uh, being jailed for sharing the gospel. Christian missionaries know well that Iran is located in what's called the 1040 window, an area of the world that is closed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that didn't stop a man by the name of Dr. Tad Stewart. He chose to go to Tehran, Iran's capital, and pastor a small church. He and his family lived there during a time of revolution, revolt, and riot. And so it wasn't long before the government and the Ayatollah, the supreme leader of Iran, decided they were going to close his small, struggling Presbyterian church. The church only had a few members, but one day the government government officials came in, they burned all the Bibles... And then they ransacked the building looking for all the Sunday school curriculum and burned that too. In fact, anything that spoke of Jesus being God and the Christian story of redemption needed to be removed. Now, the final act of the government officials was to take a large padlock, close the doors of the church, and lock the doors so no one could get in. And then they wiped their hands and they shouted this phrase, Aha! We have closed Christianity in Iran. We have closed Christianity in Iran. We've closed Christianity in Iran. Now, friends, let me just state that it took not just obedience, but bravery for Dr. Tad Stewart and his family to enter such a hostile environment. I imagine he knew he would encounter opposition, but still, I mean, his heart must have sank as he heard the Iranians chant these words as they close the doors of the church. Now, in America, we haven't experienced this type of opposition yet. We've experienced unprecedented freedom to worship our God, but we should learn from the experience of Tad Stewart because this may not always be the case. And so at the outset of this message, I may ask you, do you feel in any way marginalized for being a Christian? Does it perhaps feel... Like Babylon is home in many ways. Oh, the government's not putting padlocks on our doors, but you may feel that your voice is being silenced or marginalized outside these walls. 
In fact, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, in their excellent work, Good Faith, said that two perceptions about Christians are continuing to gain steam in our culture. Number one, that we're irrelevant. And number two, that we're extreme. The former is related to the rising tide of apathy toward religion in general and Christianity in particular. The latter is just as bad. The basic beliefs of Christians that things like Jesus is the only way to God or that the Bible is the authoritative word of God and many others are extreme, even dangerous in many people's minds. The perceptions may be unfair, but it is what many people think. Similarly, in his work, Center Church, Tim Keller explains the history of this cultural shift. He notes that in the early part of the 20th century, conservative Christians had considerable cultural influence. There was a massive network of Christian agencies such as colleges and publishing companies or radio and television networks. But Keller sums it up this way in terms of our reality. He says, until the middle of the 20th century, most conservative Christians in Western societies felt basically at home in their own cultures. However, after World War II, things started to change in Europe. And by the late 1960s, a major cultural shift began to happen in the United States. In fact, if you lived through it, you probably remember it very well. There was a crisis of confidence in authority. Institutions such as the government, the church, moral values were all questioned in popular culture, television, and movies which deeply impacted the youth culture of the time. A shocking statistic you may not have heard is that church attendance dropped from 50% in 1958 to 40% in 1969. That's the fastest decline ever in such a short span of time. Even more striking is that attendance among young people in their 20s went from 51% in 1957 to 28% in 1971. You see, we think today is bad, But it began here with this massive shift. And so more recently, over the last 20 years, we see percentages of young adults who continue to mark no religious affiliation, which rose rose 30%, and the percentage of young adults calling themselves Christians plummeted by 15%. Now, those numbers should really scare us. Now, why do I mention this at the beginning? Because from the late 1960s until today, the main cultural institutions that used to support Christianity have stopped. By the mid-1990s, there was a growing sense that conservative churches in the U.S. were losing contact with the culture and society. I'll give you a case in point. My grandfather started a company in the 1950s called Century Gospel Films. Business was booming in the 50s and 60s because the main social activity for teenagers was to come to church and watch Christian films on uh, on movie reels. Does anybody remember ever going to the church and watching films on movie reels? Yeah, some of you might. Well, by the 1980s and 90s, his business had all but perished. There was a shift, and it caused many Christians to feel displaced. In other words, Christians now feel like they're in exile, like this world is not their home, that society has moved from being indifferent about Christian beliefs to actually being hostile toward them. And there are many people, I suspect, who want to say now, aha, Christianity has been closed in America. So the question we have to come to terms with today is this, how will we live in exile? How will we live in exile? How will we live when this world is not our home? 
in a world that is hostile towards our beliefs and wants us to buy into the cultural narratives of our day, narratives that find themselves in opposition to our Christian convictions. The question, my friends, is this. How do we live when Babylon is home? And yet, if you look throughout history, this is when the church has thrived and the gospel has spread most effectively. Well, today, by God's grace, we do find ourselves in the Old Testament book of Daniel, and this is exactly where his story begins, in exile, trying to be faithful to our great God. And so Daniel chapter 1 unfolds in three movements, which I'll simply call the removal, the the resolution, and the reward. The removal, the resolution, and the reward. And in each scene, we will see a lesson about living in exile, but ultimately, we'll find hope in the reality that God is in control. Now, the rest of the book of Daniel breaks down pretty easily, so I'll let you know where we're heading. Uh, the first six weeks we're going to be spending in Daniel chapter 1 to 6, which are narratives of Daniel's time in Babylon, famous stories you probably have heard of. We'll cover things like the fiery furnace, the handwriting on the wall, the lion, Daniel in the lion's den, perhaps the most famous of all the narratives in the book. Well, the second half of the book, which you probably haven't spent as much time in, chapters 7 to 12, are a mixture of apocalyptic literature and prophetic visions. And so we'll spend the final four weeks studying those passages. But today, let's start with movement one of chapter one, the removal. The removal. Now, let me offer some quick context on the beginning of this chapter. Uh, If you read through the history of the Old Testament, the history of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, you will see that Israel is united as a nation until 1 Kings chapter 11, after Solomon's reign. After After Israel is divided... Um, It becomes the northern kingdom, which is still called Israel, and then there's a southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Now, the northern kingdom was known for being ruled by kings who didn't follow Yahweh God and his laws, and eventually they were conquered by the Assyrian Empire and carried away into captivity, never to return to their homeland. Northern kingdom was wiped out, but the southern kingdom of Judah had some bad kings, but by God's grace, it also had some good kings. And they were eventually conquered by the Babylonians, which begins here in Daniel. They were taken into exile, and they do return to their homeland. The narratives of Ezra and Nehemiah detail the return of Israel to their homeland around 400 B.C. And so the story of Daniel begins as the Babylonians are beginning their conquest of the southern kingdom of Judah. Let's read Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So Jehoiakim is the last king of Judah. In fact, this story actually begins at the end of another story. If you go further back in the Old Testament to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, we read that the previous king before Jehoiakim had been captured by the Egyptians and carried away into Egypt. Eleven years later, Jehoiakim, who uh, followed him, is sitting in the palace looking over the city walls at an enemy who has come for him and his people. Second Chronicles tells us that Jehoiakim has done evil in the sight of the Lord. He's a bad king. And now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has come to take him into captivity like his predecessor. Now, can you just imagine sitting in your house here in New Jersey when all of a sudden some military person comes to your door and knocks 
on it, or bangs on it maybe, and tells you that they're going to take you from your home and put you into exile in the middle of Pennsylvania. (laughs) Scary, right? Sorry for all you Pennsylvania people, but it's just true. Now, let's read further. Daniel 1, 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. It says here, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. See, again, Jehoiakim has done evil in the sight of the Lord. He's not been a faithful king, and God is going to use the king of Babylon to bring judgment upon him. So on the surface, the beginning of the book of Daniel looks like a story of hopelessness. Because Judah's about to be conquered. However, we catch a glimpse that God is still in control in the midst of this hopelessness. It's worth noting that in this process, Nebuchadnezzar desecrates the temple of God, which is going to bring uh, judgment upon people later in our narrative of Daniel. So the king of, of, of Judah faces judgment for what he did, but the Babylonians don't stop there. If you read in the next couple verses, you'll see that they decided to take some youthful elites of the Israelites, which begins a series of deportations of the Israelite people starting in the year 605 B.C. and continues for many years. Nebuchadnezzar decides he's going to take the best of the best that Israel has to offer and make them Babylonians. So he sends in his right-hand man, Ashpenaz, and to bring some of the royal family to Babylon. Now, let, just to put this in context, this is pretty much equivalent to some scout coming down and taking all the young talent in the Yankees farm system and bringing it up to the Boston Red Sox. That's what's happening here. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the young people who were the best looking and the smartest, brought to his palace. Why? Well, we learn in verse 4. To teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Then they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. The Chaldeans is simply another term for the Babylonians here. And the question we're asking in this verse is, what was the king of Babylon trying to do here? His plan was to wipe out Judah, not simply by destroying the city, It was not simply to remove them from their homeland. The king's plan was to completely remove their identity. He was trying to take over Judah without actually taking over Judah. So he wanted these young people to no longer identify as Israelites, but as Babylonians. And perhaps the original plan was to eventually enculturate them into Babylon and then send them back to Israel and and make and help and use them to make everybody else Babylonians, even in the land of Judah. How does he do that? Well, in, this verse, in these verses, we learn a couple ways that he does that. First, he makes them read their literature and learn their language. He wanted them to learn the stories of the Babylonians and know their history so they could identify with it. Then he wanted them to speak their language. Now, I don't know how many, if you've been to different countries where they don't speak English, uh, but you feel very out of place if you don't speak the language of the country that you're going to, whether it's English or something else. The language you grew up with is your heart language. It's how you express yourself. And so in many ways, if you lose that language, you lose a part of your original identity. And so what they were doing here is removing that language, a part of their identity. The second thing they do is make them eat their food. Now, there's a close connection between food and culture. 
No doubt about it. As a native New Jerseyan, I know how close we can hold food to our identity. After all, doesn't New Jersey have the best pizza, the best bagels, and isn't the only place in the country where you can find pork roll or tower ham, depending on where you are on the side of the the debate, amen? Nothing can make you feel more out of place than going to a different part of the country where you can't find good pizza. In fact, I lived in Denver for over five years, and I couldn't find pork roll, which was devastating to me. Um, But the one thing I did appreciate about Denver was the fact that they had good Mexican food. I never liked Mexican food until I moved to Denver. In fact, if you're you're from California, you know the Mexican food in Denver is not as good as there. But um, it made me feel more connected to the culture and history of that place. That what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is by changing their diet, he sought to further remove their identity. Third, he educated them. They were taught the ways and the laws of the Babylonians, meaning their worldview was being shaped by Babylon. And so they tried to remove their identity by changing the way they thought, which makes a lot of sense because this is how we train our kids even today. But there was one final way the Babylonians tried to take away their identity. Verse 6. It said, Among these, these youthful elite, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. You may know those names. The final removal... The final way they tried to take away their identity was by changing their names. Now, my name is very important to me. You may have heard me speak about this up here before. I am Robert Philip Erbig IV. And if you're a fourth or a third or whatever, you know that there's some, there's some identity related to that. In fact, my, before my wife and I got married, I told her that the first boy we had had to be named Robert Philip Erbig V, or we'll just simply call him Five or something like that. We still have an ongoing dialogue about that. (laughs) But my name reminds me of all the men who have come before me with that name. In fact, when we were deciding on names for our daughter, we considered their meaning. My daughter's name is Jenna, which means God is gracious. And her middle name is Joy, which indeed she's a bringer of joy. They were perfect names for her, and names help to shape identity. So to change your name means to change your identity to some extent. And I think the Babylonians knew this because, look, the Hebrew name for Daniel means God is my judge. It was associated with Yahweh God of Israel. But the Babylonian name Belteshazzar means may a God protect his life, which was associated with the Babylonian gods. And while some of these names here are debated, it appears simply that the Babylonians were attempting to give Daniel and his friends a new identity and allegiance to Babylon and its gods. That is what they were doing. And yet, we read earlier in this chapter that God gave Judah's king over to Babylon. That God allowed this and he is actively in control. What is he trying to teach us here? Well, as followers of Christ, I think the first lesson we have to learn about living in exile is this. Faithful Christians know their identity is in Christ. Faithful Christians know their identity is in Christ. That as people who live in exile in this world, as people who feel a continual marginalization in this world, and as we see our brothers and sisters overseas experience persecution and pressure to conform our identities to our surroundings, church... 
We have to remember that our identity is in Jesus Christ. That our allegiance is to Christ first. Before our family, before our country, and before our career. Our identity is in Christ, and when that happens, we will be Jesus' first people, and that will direct our entire lives. If you're a teenager here today, or maybe a young adult, and there's pressure from your friends to be just like everyone else, remember this. Your identity is not in what people think of you. Your identity is in what God did for you. Our allegiance should be placed in the one who will never let us down. If you're a career person here today, your identity is not found in your position or salary. It is not bad being successful. It's not wrong. But your identity is first and foremost bestowed on you by a heavenly father who has adopted you into his family. Maybe you're here today and you're in the fourth quarter of your life. We need to hear this. The only legacy that truly matters is that people see Jesus with your life. That faithful Christians know their identity is in Christ. See, so often we find our identity in what the world around us says through the cultural narratives of the day, but the biblical narrative tells us that someone spilled his blood so we could have a new identity in him. See, these pressures are all too real. And yet, God gave the Israelites into the hands of the Babylonians. No matter the circumstances, God is in control. Even when things are difficult, we are called to be faithful to God. Well, now the story shifts directly to Daniel and his choice to be faithful to God. And so he shows us the second part of this story, the resolution. The resolution, because God will always be faithful, but he also calls us to be faithful to him. Sometimes he calls us to take a stand and do something unpopular for him. Look at what Daniel does in verse 8. It says this, And Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So a conflict has arisen in the king's court. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. His name has been changed, his worldview has been altered, but when it came to food, Daniel said, or when it came to, uh, to food, Daniel said, enough. Up to this point, there's been no recorded resistance of Daniel and his friends, so why is this so important? Well, commentators haven't come to really a consensus on this. Some people say, well, Daniel is making a stand for the Old Testament dietary laws. That word for defile actually means religious defilement. Others think that Daniel was concerned about the religious overtones of the king's table, that the food was being sacrificed to Babylonian gods. I may suggest, though, that it's more likely the answer is connected with the narrative itself. Because Daniel and his friends have been prepared for service to the king. They've received the king's education. They've eaten the king's food. Therefore, if they prosper, who do you think is going to receive recognition for their success? The king. And so Daniel refuses to eat the food because he is trusting God that he will be faithful, that God will keep them healthy. And so Daniel makes a request to the king's servant that they would not eat the food. And how does the king's servant respond? Well, we see immediately that God's hand is on Daniel. Verse 9, it says here, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Notice again that phrase, God gave. 
It indicates God is here orchestrating this, that he's being faithful to Daniel in exile as Daniel is being faithful to him. However, Ashpenaz was not bought into this idea. He responds to Daniel by saying, listen, Daniel, listen, you are my responsibility. If I don't give you the king's food, if you become malnourished, it's going to be my head on the plate. I'm going to be the one who is punished, Daniel. And so he refuses to help for fear of his life. So Daniel's got to come up with an alternative plan. He, he knows this diet is, is private. No one's going to know what they're eating. And so Ashpenaz assigns a guard to oversee the diet of Daniel and his friends. Daniel offers him a proposal. He essentially says this, why don't you test us? He proposes a 10-day trial period where they will eat nothing but water and vegetables. I mean, come on, water and vegetables, 10 days. And after 10 days, Daniel says, look at our appearance and judge whether we look malnourished. So this guard agrees, and they're tested for 10 days. And look at what happens, verse 15. If you skip down to verse 15, it says, At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward who took away their food and the wine that they were to drink, he took them away and gave them vegetables. At the end of 10 days... After eating only vegetables and water, they were better in appearance than everyone else. Some of us are saying, well, I don't know why it can't work the other way around. Like, why can't I get the good stuff and not gain weight instead of just getting the water and vegetables, right? (laughs) Daniel's first plan didn't work, so he used wisdom and came up with a second plan. His resolution was that he would trust God to take care of him and his friends, which is our second lesson to faithful Christians in exile. Faithful Christians trust God in all circumstances. Faithful Christians trust God in all circumstances. Now, friends, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. No matter the circumstance, God is in control. No matter the circumstance, God is in control. Can we Actually, can we say that together? One, two, three. No matter the circumstance, God is in control. And as you look through the narrative of Daniel 1, there is a phrase that is repeated over and over again in each of these three movements. Did you catch it? Chapter 1, verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was strong, but it was the Lord who gave Judah into his hands. Do you think that Nebuchadnezzar would have gotten if the Lord had not wanted that? Chapter 1, verse 9 says, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion. That in the same way, long ago, God gave Joseph favor before Pharaoh. God did the same thing for Daniel. You see, on the surface, the story is about human actions. But if you look underneath the story, the chapter primarily teaches us that God is in control. And friends, God calls us to trust him, to choose to follow him daily, just like Daniel and his friends. I mean, they could have easily said, forget that, man. We're going to eat the king's food. I mean, I mean it's good. I mean, there's meat, and there's cheese, and there's wine, and why wouldn't you want to eat that? But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. In other words, he actively chose to trust God in in the circumstances, and God gave him the favor. And this type of resolution became the staple of Daniel's life. We're going to see in chapter 2 that Daniel trusts God to help him interpret a dream, even though his life is at stake. 
In chapter 3, Daniel's friends endure the fiery furnace to be faithful to God. And in chapter 6, God protects Daniel in the lion's den because, why? He's resolved to keep praying to his God when people tell him not to. In fact, as we'll see later in later weeks, Daniel lived in exile here for 70 years, over 70 years. And each day he actively chose to trust God no matter the circumstances. That's a big wow. And if you think about it, over 70 years, that's a lot of choices. But faithful Christians trust God in all circumstances. And Daniel's decisions tell us what we need to know about his life. That just like Daniel, we must choose to follow Jesus every day of our lives. You know, Columbia researcher Sheena Iyengar has found that the average person makes about 70 decisions every day. It's a lot of decisions in one day. That's 25,500 decisions a year. And if you put that over 70 years, if if by God's grace you get to live that long, over 70 years, that's 1,788,500 decisions. That's a lot of decisions. The 20th century philosopher Albert Camus said this, life is the sum of all your choices. And if you put those 1,788,500 choices together, that is who you are. And so I might ask, if you were in Daniel's position, what would you have resolved to do? What decision would you have made? In fact, perhaps there's a situation in your job right now where someone is asking you to cut corners. Maybe if you do this, you could lose your job. Maybe your friends are pressuring you to do something you know is wrong, and you might lose some friends if you choose against that. Would you resolve to trust God even when the circumstances are difficult, even when you might lose something. Commentator Tremper Longman puts it this way, Daniel teaches us that the struggle is not to make the culture Christian, but how a Christian can live in a hostile culture. And so as people living in exile, in a culture that is hostile towards us, being resolved is difficult. It's hard to trust God. But when we do, we experience what Daniel and his friends experienced, the reward. And that's the third part of this, the reward. Now, we don't always experience this the same way, but God is faithful. And in Daniel's case, God, in his sovereignty, guides faithful Daniel and his friends to positions of power in Babylon. Look back at the story, verse 17. It says this, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now there's that phrase again, God gave. He gave them learning and skill. God gave Daniel the ability to have understanding with visions and dreams. Do you see how God's at work in this story? That God blesses his people. In fact, the effect of the theme of God giving throughout the chapter is to press home the reality that he is the one in control of the events of Daniel's life. And he's in control of the fate of God's people. After three years of training, Daniel and his friends come before King Nebuchadnezzar, and this is what we learn in verse 18. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and listen to this, and among them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. That there was no one like Daniel and his friends. 
that God preserved them through the training period. They were found to be at the top of their class. They stood out. Daniel and his friends have essentially been at the university for the last few years, and they've chosen to prioritize purity over pleasure and promotion. As a result, they found favor with the king. And I have to say, if you're a student heading to college this fall or back to college, I would challenge you to be different, to prioritize your purity over your pleasure and promotion. That even though you may lose friends, may you trust God in all circumstances and watch what he does. He may even make you like Daniel and his friends. But the reality is it's a challenge today. In fact, listen to this study. The Institute for Jewish and Community Research surveyed over 1,200 professors from a cross-section of colleges seeking their attitudes towards various religions. The research was originally aimed at gauging anti-Semitism, but something else was discovered. The professors stated that they had positive feelings towards Jews and Catholics, but 53% said they possessed unfavorable feelings towards students who were evangelical Christians. In fact, in his article, Why Christians Feel Unwelcome on the Campus, David French offers his own conclusion on this matter. He says, for evangelicals, it came through loud and clear. The academic establishment has long dismissed stories about bias against Christians as mere anecdotes. But now we have concrete evidence of sheer bigotry. Our colleges clearly have a religion problem. And faithful students and professors are paying the price. Moral of the story, choose your colleges wisely. But what's so interesting is that many colleges and universities in the United States were originally started as Bible colleges. Princeton, Yale, they were training schools for pastors, Their current state is an example of the cultural shift we mentioned at the beginning of this message. And if you choose to be faithful, it may be hard. But if you're faithful to God, he will bless you. Watch how Daniel's story concludes in verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So the story of Daniel begins with King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon defeating the king of Judah and taking his people into exile. His plan is to make them Babylonians and send them back to Jerusalem, but what he didn't take into account was God. That by the end of the chapter 1, Daniel and his friends found favor with God and were placed in positions of influence and authority in Babylon. That Nebuchadnezzar didn't see that coming. And now God will use his faithful people to glorify him in exile. And so in that, we see our third lesson about living in exile, and it's this. Faithful Christians seek to bless others in exile. See, while the narrative of Daniel 1 ends in verse 20, we get a glimpse of what is to come in the future. In verse 21, it says this. And Daniel, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Did you catch that? The reign of King Cyrus did not begin until 70 years in the future. So the story begins with Nebuchadnezzar, but by the end of the story, he gone. Daniel's still there. God is still using him. 
In fact, as we look through the book, several other kings are going to come and go, but Daniel is still there. God is using him in exile. He's preserving him. And while he's preserving him, he's using Daniel to point people to himself. God gave Daniel Daniel favor and compassion so that he might be used mightily of God. You know, the prophet Jeremiah also wrote to God's people in exile. He told them to hunker down, to build houses, to have families. He told them to use their gifts and bless others around them. Jeremiah 29, 7, he said, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. You see, God says, while you're in exile, bless others. As the redeemed people of God, we have so many opportunities to decide to be faithful to him, to tell the story of grace and see many people come to faith in our great God. May we both proclaim and demonstrate the gospel while we are in exile. Will that be easy? No. Will you face opposition? Yes. Will God be faithful? You bet. May we accept the challenge of the old song, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to hold a purpose firm, dare to make it known. And no matter the circumstances, remember, God is in control. Remember that. And ask yourself this question this week, how will you live in exile? How will you live when Babylon is home? Will you get upset at the fact you're losing influence? Will you lie down and throw in the towel? Or will you choose to be faithful? Will you choose to trust God? Will you seek to bless others? Because church, we don't run away when times get tough. We remember that God is in control. We stand our ground no matter the risk. May we be faithful like Daniel was faithful. And may we remember that God is faithful even when we are not. Let me come back to that story that I opened with. And as I do, I'd invite the worship team to join us on stage. They have one more song for us. You may remember that the Iranians thought they had closed Christianity in Iran. They thought they had ended the threat. But Tad Stewart and his wife chose to be faithful like Daniel was faithful. And so they opened their small home on Sunday mornings uh, for people to come and worship. Nobody dared say where they were going, and they came early in the morning when it was dark, so no one would see them. But over time, church attendance grew until it doubled, and then it tripled. People smuggled in Bibles as if they were pure gold. Tad said that when someone opened a Bible in his house during these services, you could hear a pin drop. That suddenly electricity and faith broke out in that church. And soon the church made an impact all over the city of Tehran. All over Iran and even over parts of the Middle East. And all they could look around and and as they marveled at that, all they could say was, friends, God did that. God did that. That he used faithful people to change lives of many. And he calls us to be faithful in exile because no matter the circumstance, God is in control. He calls us to be faithful as he showers down blessings for his glory. Amen?